Ah, come on. Feeling like you might freak out? Try Guaranteed Ride Home from Commuter Connections. If you ride share to work, you are eligible to receive a couple of free rides home each year. Guaranteed. Why freak out about getting home in case of illness, unexpected emergencies, or unscheduled overtime? Register or renew today for free at commuterconnections.org or 800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. DC emergency 911 operator 6752. Do you need police, fire, or ambulance? Who was the person that stabbed him? I don't know. We think it's somebody with an intruder in the house. Initially, when we got on the scene, there were a lot of things that just didn't make sense. The story didn't make sense as far as anything being cleaned up. It was more or less of everything looked staged. And if you care about Kathy Wan, if you care about Robert Wan, you would share that information. Having a murder on your conscience is no small load to carry. On August 2nd, 2006, Robert Wan, a 32-year-old married attorney, was found stabbed to death inside the home of a friend in Washington, D.C., a murder still unsolved that is one of the district's most chilling, haunting, and mind-boggling in recent memory. Four people were inside the Swan Street house that night, but the only charges came more than two years later. Victor Zaborski, Joseph Price, a partner in a top D.C. law firm, and Dylan Ward, three gay men who consider themselves a family were all charged with obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and tampering with evidence. After a bench trial that lasted six weeks, all three men were acquitted. What follows is a podcast about the crime that had Washington area residents transfixed for years. Who murdered Robert Wong and why? I'm Paul Wagner, a reporter with WTTG-TV Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. I've covered this case from the days after the murder through the trial of the three men, a period of more than four years. By late June 2010, the prosecution and the defense had wrapped up their cases, and the defendants were waiting to hear the verdict from the judge. It would come in a ruling 38 pages long. After presiding over the case for six weeks, Judge Lynn Leibowitz took the bench on June 29th, and inside a packed courtroom began to read. Here is defense attorney, Bernie Grimm. The entire verdict, we thought that any moment the words guilty were gonna come out of her mouth. Because really? when she starts, Price was a liar, Dylan Ward, you cried the whole trial and I think it was staged. Um, uh, Victor Zaborski, y you lied, you know, on all these other points and I don't like the way you sat there in the chair and you know, things like that. We thought it was leading up to a guilty verdict until Paul it took an hour to read that verdict, and you were there. Yeah, in the it was courtroom. 38 pages long. Yeah. It wasn't until 30 seconds before she said, I can't find them guilty, that we, there was a unified exhale in the courtroom. There was something in the Washington Post that all the defendants and lawyers were looking at each other, winking and smiling. I haven't smiled since I was nine years old, for Christ's sakes. So I wasn't smiling. This is. There was no euphoria at the end of that? No. There because it's a lose-lose. We, we all had gone back to Dave Shirtler's office because the families had left their luggage there. 
but other than shaking hands and goodbye good luck call me if you if you need anything um, there was no cheering somebody was dead and it was a cl very very close friend of theirs and as time moves on Joe and his and the people that were charged created a, a memorial and a scholarship fund at William and Mary in Robert Wallen's name that they financed Listen now to the story I filed on the verdict for that night's 5 o'clock news. The two voices you will hear in the story are first Prosecutor Glenn Kirshner and then Bernie Grimm. Kathy Wan left the courthouse in tears, her quest for justice in a shambles. She declined to comment. As they have since the night of the murder, all three defendants also had nothing to say. Inside the packed courtroom, Joseph Price, Victor Zaborski, and Dylan Ward sat calmly as Judge Lynn Leibowitz read her 37-page ruling word for word. They showed no emotion, as Judge Leibowitz said, It is very probable that the government's theory is correct, that even if the defendants did not participate in the murder, some or all of them knew enough about the circumstances of it to provide helpful information to law enforcement and have chosen to withhold that information for reasons of their own. Prosecutors were convinced the knife found at the crime scene was planted and one, two, or all three men tampered with the evidence. But Judge Leibowitz said she wasn't convinced. In fact, after listening to a witness for the defense, she now believes the knife found at the scene was in fact the murder weapon. We all understand and accept the judge's verdict. Um, it was thoughtful, uh, it was well-reasoned, and, um, you know, we can only hope that further evidence continues to come to light that will allow us to move forward in the homicide investigation. In her ruling, Judge Leibowitz said she didn't believe the intruder theory. She also said she wasn't convinced Michael Price, Joe Price's brother, was somehow involved. I think the court's verdict reflects just a lot of time that uh, the judge spent over the evidence, over the testimony, and although whenever you have a homicide, anyone's conduct must be regarded as suspicious. Um, it never reached proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Mr. Price, through this ordeal, is virtually uh, bankrupt. As she reached the end of her findings, Judge Leibowitz said, my verdicts represent my effort to fairly and impartially follow the rule of law. My focus on the difference between moral certainty and evidentiary certainty in this case is probably cold comfort to those who loved Robert Wan and wish for some measure of peace or justice. And I am extremely sorry for this. I believe, however, that the reasonable doubt standard is essential to maintaining our criminal justice system as the fair and just system we wish it to be. In this podcast, we have spent a considerable amount of time discussing certain aspects of the case the intruder theory, the knife, and the timeline. So in order to understand Judge Leibowitz's ruling, I am going to quote extensively from it. Let's first tackle the intruder theory. Here is the judge's comments word for word, quoting now. As an initial matter, I am persuaded by the trial evidence in its totality, and I find that the murder of Robert Wan was not committed by an intruder unknown to the defendants. My reasons for this conclusion are the evidence that there was no sign of forced entry, 
No items or property were disturbed within the home. No mark or disturbance was made in the dust or debris on the fence railing. Defendant's car or the plant beds inside the fence, not a single item of value of the type commonly taken by burglars was taken, including a flat screen television and a laptop computer in view of the kitchen and two wallets in plain view on the desk in the guest room. And the intruder had to have passed by Mr. Ward's room to get to the guest room, yet nobody entered Mr. Ward's room. Other reasons for my finding include the fact that Mr. Wan was entirely immobile at the time of the stabbing and the deliberate and methodical way in which the wounds were inflicted. Mr. Wan, who certainly could have been asleep with his night guard in his mouth and lying on his covers on a very warm evening, nevertheless, physiologically could have moved during the infliction of the three terrible wounds and just did not do so. The circumstances of the commission of the murder itself are inconsistent with the defense position that an intruder killed Mr. Wan. This is not to say that there is no possibility whatsoever that an intruder entered as defendants say Wan did. The defendants presented evidence that a sandbox cover next door in a yard enclosed by a fence as high as defendant's fence was crushed inward, suggesting this was done by the intruder who could have stepped on the sandbox as he climbed the fence. Had anyone done so, however, he would have fallen into the steep brick stairwell that led from defendant's patio down to their basement directly on the other side of the fence from the sandbox. Although defendants also demonstrated that a person could have and that people actually have vaulted the fence from the alleyway there is simply no evidence in this record that this happened on August 2, 2006. The government has thus presented powerful evidence to support its claim that Robert Wan's murderer was either one of the defendants or someone known to them who was able to enter without breaking. However, although I am satisfied that an intruder did not commit the murder, this is not the only issue before me. The essential question remains whether the evidence proves beyond a reasonable doubt as to any defendant that he knew sufficient information about the murder at any point on August 2nd, 3rd, 2006 to develop the specific intent to undermine the integrity of the investigation and to take action on that intent." Unquote. Now, let's tackle the judge's finding on the knife. Here's what she wrote word for word, quoting now. I find that the government has failed to prove that the true murder weapon was a knife from the cutlery set found in Mr. Ward's bedroom closet, or that the knife found on the nightstand next to Mr. Wan's body was planted by any of the three defendants, either individually or in concert, or that any of them applied blood to it with a towel to make it appear falsely to be the murder weapon. Although it is possible that the knife once housed in the cutlery set found in Mr. Ward's closet was the murder weapon, in that its dimensions are consistent with those of Mr. Wan's stab wounds, the court would have to speculate to conclude on the current record that that particular knife was ever inside 1509 Swan Street or used to murder Mr. Wan. Moreover, as defendants argued, it makes little sense that a killer would successfully dispose of a murder weapon 
only to have his friends create evidence that could actually inculpate both the killer and the people covering up the killing. I further conclude that the knife used to commit the stabbing was in fact the kitchen knife found on the nightstand. Dr. Henry Lee, the defense blood pattern expert, testified persuasively that the blood pattern on the knife was consistent with its having been inserted three times into the victim's torso, each time pushing a ridge of blood and other materials away from the tip and toward the handle of the knife. The pattern described by Dr. Lee is distinctly observable on the knife, which is depicted in the large photograph of the murder weapon as it sat on the nightstand, Defense Exhibit 167A. In addition, government and defense witnesses alike agreed, and the photograph shows that also on the blade of the knife recovered from the crime scene was at least one shiny globule of human fat or tissue and several cut fragments of dark hair from Mr. Wan's chest. For these reasons, I am convinced that the knife found at the crime scene was the murder weapon. With respect to the questions whether Mr. Ward or Mr. Zaborski in any respect handled the knife at the crime scene after the commission of the stabbing or cleaned blood from the victim's body or elsewhere on the crime scene, I concluded at the close of the government's case that no reasonable juror could find that either of them did so, either as a principal or as an aider and a better. I therefore granted their motions for judgment of acquittal as to the charges of tampering with evidence. For the same reasons, I conclude that the government's proof is insufficient to establish that either Mr. Ward or Mr. Zaborski altered the crime scene or any evidence at the crime scene, including the knife, on August 2, 2006. I turn now to Mr. Price's actions at the crime scene and his later statements about his actions at the scene, the varied and inconsistent statements Mr. Price made to police and others about his contact with the murder weapon and the body taken together with my close examination of the physical evidence and the expert testimony of Dr. Lee have persuaded me that it is very likely that Mr. Price pulled the murder weapon from the victim's chest, actually wiped a portion of the blade and even possibly the handle of the knife with a towel at the crime scene or wiped the body of blood. Further, if he did any of these things, he later omitted these material facts from his statements to police about his handling of the knife and the body. The question for the court has been how convinced I am that he did any or all of these things, and if he did them, why he did not tell police about them. In Mr. Price's interview with Detectives Norris and Wagner, he told them he found the knife laying on Mr. Wan's chest and that he moved it. He speculated that his fingerprints might therefore be found on the knife. He made other references to fingerprints that could be on the scene and was clearly focused on explaining the presence of his own should they be found on the knife. After this interview, Mr. Price left the VCB and sat with his close friend Scott Hickson and Mr. Zaborski, whom he had not seen since he left 1509 Swan Street earlier that night in Mr. Hickson's automobile. During his conversation with Mr. Hickson in Mr. Zaborski's presence, Mr. Price stated that he pulled the knife out of his friend. A few minutes later, Mr. Price returned to the VCB and stated to Detective Wade during a narrative unprompted by questions, I think I said the knife was laying on him. One of the officers actually, I think one of the guys last night or whatever said, was it, you know, was it in him? 
I don't know. I mean, it was very surreal. Days later, Mr. Price repeated to Tara Ragone, a mutual friend of his, and Mr. Wands, that he had pulled the knife from Mr. Wands' chest. He later stated also to Ms. Ragone, in response to her question whether he had tampered with evidence at the scene, there is a big difference between tampering with a crime scene and somebody wiping away some blood because they are freaking out waiting for the ambulance. But Mr. Price never admitted to police having pulled the knife from Mr. Wan's body and never admitted wiping blood away from either the knife or the body. The photograph of the knife as it sat on the nightstand depicts a thin portion of the blade at the sharp edge of the knife that appears to have been wiped clean with some cloth or towel. This portion of the blade has none of the layering of blood resulting from three insertions into the torso that Dr. Lee pointed out on the rest of the blade. Dr. Lee acknowledged that the sharp edge of the blade appeared unusually free of the layered blood pattern he had described on the rest of the blade and attempted unconvincingly to explain that it could have occurred as the result of the knife's contact with the victim's t-shirt as the knife was pulled from the chest. This answer was unconvincing based on Dr. Lee's own testimony that the cut fibers of the t-shirt likely would have made a distinctive dotted pattern on the knife had they come in contact with it. On the hilt of the knife appears the dotted pattern that Douglas Diedrich, the government's fiber expert testified, and I credit, was consistent with having been made by a looped fabric like a cotton towel as opposed to another type of woven fabric. The black handle of the knife is pristine. During the trial, defense counsel demonstrated, in order to disprove the government's theory, that blood had been applied to a clean knife for purposes of a plant. The motion of drawing a knife that was an exact replica of the murder weapon used for demonstrative purposes through the actual blood-stained towel found at the crime scene with thumb and forefinger pinched along the blade. On that towel, depicted in close-up view with backlighting in Defendant's Exhibit 6040, are two mirror image, approximately nickel-sized spots of blood about three inches apart and another approximately the size of a quarter, also about three inches from one of the other two spots. These appear to have been made by the very motion demonstrated by counsel, the drawing of the knife, blade side into the towel but not touching the fabric so as to cut it between pinched thumb and forefinger. Any person who has ever used a sharp kitchen knife while cooking has replicated that same motion in wiping the blade's edge clean with a towel. Finally, although the knife was processed for fingerprints, none were found on it, including on the clean portion of the steel hilt and on the rougher surface of the black handle. I am persuaded by all of this evidence that Mr. Price very likely tampered with and altered the murder weapon and that he lied about his conduct in this regard to police with obstructive purpose, although I conclude that I cannot fairly find this beyond a reasonable doubt. I say this after lengthy consideration of this issue because I conclude that I do not know enough specifically about what Mr. Price did at the crime scene with respect to the knife, what he wiped, or about why he did it.
I have no direct evidence that Mr. Price did anything to the handle and can only suppose because he was so focused on fingerprints in his statement that he intended to remove fingerprints from it. Despite my conclusions that the knife blade was wiped along the sharp edge, it is the case that wiping the blade only would have been of little value to someone trying to destroy evidence. In addition, there was no expert testimony regarding this factual scenario, and the government has never adopted this theory in its prosecution. With respect to the government's claim that Mr. Price wiped blood from the victim's body, there is evidence in his own admission to Ms. Ragome that he did. The physical evidence at the crime scene coupled with Mr. Price's statements to others suggested variously that Mr. Price may have, albeit briefly, applied pressure to the wounds as he had been directed or that he may have wiped the body for reasons that are unclear. Dr. Leo pined and the evidence showed that the towel recovered from the floor had a discernible blood stain on it that could have resulted from some application of pressure with the heel or four fingers of the hand to the wounds. The government's observation that there is not very much blood in that particular stain is correct. However, this evidence appears to be more or less consistent with the testimony of all of the medical and forensic pathology experts that Mr. Wan's injuries resulted in extensive internal bleeding, but very limited external bleeding. More cannot be said on this record about how much blood should have been on Mr. Wan, on the towel, or elsewhere on the scene. On the current record, I cannot firmly conclude that Mr. Price wiped blood from the body as opposed to applying pressure to the wounds, although it is probable in light of his statements that he did wipe the body. While there is some evidence supplied by Mr. Zaborski's statements that a second towel may have been used at some point. This statement was not admitted for its truth against Mr. Price, and there is no physical evidence that any other much more bloody towel was in fact used or disposed of. Moreover, I cannot find that if Mr. Price did wipe the body, he did so in an effort to alter the scene or destroy evidence. It is unclear that wiping blood from Mr. Wan's body could accomplish any particular obstructive purpose, something the government conceded in closing argument. Additionally, I find that it is likely Mr. Price actually pulled the weapon from the victim's chest based upon his own statements to others and intentionally admitted this fact from his statements to police as well. But I cannot say why he pulled the knife from the chest if he did so, or that his reasons for failing to tell the police about it if he did were to obstruct justice rather than cover for a reflective act he knew later would make him look foolish. The government conceded in closing argument that the latter motive would not support a conviction for tampering with evidence or obstruction of justice. I conclude, therefore, that my findings regarding this discrete set of acts, that is, Mr. Price's handling of the knife, towel, and blood at the crime scene, and his statements about this to police do not, by themselves, establish proof beyond a reasonable doubt of obstruction of justice. For the same reasons with respect to the charge of tampering with evidence remaining against Mr. Price only, 
Although I find that it is very likely Mr. Price altered or destroyed evidence at the scene with the specific intent to reduce its value as evidence in the imminent investigation of the death of Robert Wan, I further conclude that the government has not established these elements beyond a reasonable doubt. Unquote. Now, let's turn to the timeline. Here is what the judge had to say about the allegation the men waited as long as 49 minutes before calling 911. Quoting now, word for word. The government has attempted to establish that there was a significant time delay in the reporting of the stabbing by means of Mr. Zaborski's 911 call at 11.49 p.m. The government argues that the evidence of this delay is significantly at odds with the timelines related by all three defendants to law enforcement. I conclude that the government's evidence does not sufficiently establish the time of the stabbing or of the defendant's discovery of the stabbing to prove the defendant's timelines are false. The defendant's next door neighbor, Mr. Thomas, testified that he heard a scream from his bedroom at the time when he also believed he heard reporter Maureen Bunyan on television from downstairs, suggesting that this had to be before the conclusion of the news at 11.30 p.m. The government's medical evidence suggested that Mr. Wan may have survived for some minutes after the stabbing, and the paramedics stated that Mr. Wan appeared to have been deceased for some time upon their arrival. However, none of this evidence is conclusive on the question of the truthfulness of the defendant's timeline. While it is very possible that the call was not made so quickly as was asserted, it is also clear from the evidence that Mr. Wan could not have survived untreated in PEA for very long. If defendants did lie about the timeline, it surely was material and in and of itself would have supported a conviction for obstruction and conspiracy as to all three. I am not convinced by the trial record, however, that the government has established its claims about the time of the stabbing beyond a reasonable doubt. Further, I am persuaded that with or without a delay, defendants discussed the murder before the police arrived based on their initial statements to police that they had resolved that an intruder had entered the home through the back door and other admissions later made by the defendants that they had discussed the crime. This does not necessarily prove that they conspired to obstruct justice in their discussions, although it is some evidence that they had the opportunity to do so. In addition, the defendants own extensive evidence regarding the possible time of the stabbing in relation to when the 911 call was made establishes that there likely was enough time after the stabbing for the defendants to have discussed what they would say to police and even to tamper with the knife or other items at the scene if that was what happened. Based on the preceding analysis of the statements and the circumstances of their making by all defendants, I am not firmly convinced that any of the particular details the government has identified within any of the defendant's statements was a knowing falsehood uttered with the intent to obstruct justice. Overall, the defendant's story that an intruder committed the offense is incredible beyond a reasonable doubt. But as I have said, that does not answer the question whether each defendant knew this 
at the time he spoke to investigators on August 2nd or 3rd, 2006, or later in talking to others. Any one of the defendants could have been the odd man out of the scheme. Any one of them could have believed the others when he was told that they were not responsible for Mr. Wan's death and that they had no idea how it had occurred. Any one of them could have found the intruder theory plausible in the face of these denials. If he did not know the real truth, and if he trusted his co-defendants at the time. If any defendant was this one, his statements were not knowingly false and his statements were not made with the intent to keep the police from solving the murder. I do not find beyond a reasonable doubt that the statements of any defendant were so knowingly or demonstrably false that they alone establish the charges." Unquote. Ugh, not again. Feeling like you might freak out? Try Guaranteed Ride Home from Commuter Connections. If you ride share to work, you're eligible for a couple of free rides home each year, guaranteed. Why freak out about getting home in case of illness, unexpected emergencies, or unscheduled overtime? Register or renew today for free at commuterconnections.org or 800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. Now let's turn to the judge's conclusion that reads like this. Again, word for word quoting now. My analysis of the evidence has been lengthy. Although I have attempted to discuss all of the party's major factual contentions as they relate to the charges, I may not have discussed every piece of evidence that is in the record. I have, however, considered all of the evidence in the trial record extremely carefully, and my verdicts are the product of my application of the law and the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt to the evidence presented at this trial. As I have said, the scope of a reasonable mind is broad, and both innocence and guilt beyond a reasonable doubt may be fair conclusions based upon given facts. The question remains whether viewing the entire trial record of the defendant's actions in their totality, the evidence establishes beyond a reasonable doubt the charges against the defendants, Based on the foregoing analysis and upon the entire record, I cannot, in the end, conclude with the high level of certainty required by the reasonable doubt standard that any particular one of the defendants was not the odd man out. That is, I cannot find beyond a reasonable doubt as to each individual defendant, as if he were being tried alone, that he knew enough about the murder of Robert Wan to have endeavored to impede the due administration of justice with the specific intent to undermine the integrity of the investigation into Mr. Wan's death, or that he agreed with others to do so. Despite the many suspicious and even damning circumstances, despite the implausibility of the intruder story, and despite the discordant an inappropriate demeanor and conduct of the defendants, I am constrained to conclude that the government has not eliminated, beyond a reasonable doubt, the real possibility created by what I have termed the math problem in this case. Nine years later, this case still haunts so many. Property records show Victor Zaborski and Joseph Price own a home in Miami Shores, Florida. Price changed his name to Joseph Anderson 
and was admitted to the Florida bar in 2012. But his bar profile as of October 31st, 2019, says he is ineligible to practice law in the state. The profile says he is delinquent on CLER, which the Florida bar says stands for Continuing Legal Education Requirement. Victor Zaborski works for the milk industry. His profile on the website Milk Pep says he is currently vice president of marketing. As for Dylan Ward, it's less clear. The Washington Blade newspaper reported in 2016 that he changed his name to Dylan Thomas and was working at a Miami area health club. A public records check shows that Dylan Thomas has lived at the Miami Shores address belonging to Victor Zaborski and Joseph Price. Here again are bloggers Craig Brownstein and David Greer. I think something will break. I'm a firm believer in karma here and that the the weight the weight of this is um, it's too uh, it's too heavy and I, as as each year goes past I think it gets heavier yeah it's my sincere hope that there was a break in this and um, we should also mention somebody else who is not with us uh, our good dear departed friend Michael Kremen who is instrumental in keeping the site up and running and provided great inspiration in a lot of ways, editorially and uh, in uh, far greater capacities. The fourth member of the team passed away about six months ago, and he's not with us. And uh, this was uh, uh, very much a passion of his as well, the search for justice. Glenn Kirshner, who believes strongly he proved his case in court, says he still has hope Robert's murder will one day be solved. So why does this case haunt me? Um, I've lost plenty of cases. I've been not, I was a boxer, I was a wrestler, I was a football player. My pop was a high school football coach. I've been knocked down plenty and I'll get back up and I'll keep fighting. Um, so it's not me, but it's the homicide victim's family that forever want justice for what was done to their loved one and Robert's family didn't get it here. And those are the cases that stick with me. As I told you in episode one, Robert's widow, Kathy, was invited to take part in this podcast, but she declined, saying she just wasn't ready. However, she did send me a statement, which I am going to read now in full, quoting, It has been a little over 13 years now since Robert was tragically murdered. Even though I'm happily remarried now to a wonderful man, our first anniversary will be October 20. I still think about Robert every day. It's as easy as breathing air. A memory about him will float in and out. Sometimes a memory will linger. And that's when I start to feel the cry behind my eyes and the sting behind my nose. I think it will be like this for the rest of my life. I was Robert's wife. He was my husband. We loved each other deeply, and we were supposed to grow old together. Robert was only 32 years old when he was murdered. He was so young, and yet he impacted so many people during his short life. All you have to do is look into the many posthumous awards, scholarships, memorials, or funds that were created in his memory. Robert would be mortified by all of this. He was a very modest man who was most comfortable working behind the scenes so that others could succeed. He was smart as a whip. He had the heart of a servant, and he was earnest in his efforts to help those less fortunate than him. He cared deeply for you and was generally interested in you and your journey, and that is why, not surprisingly, Everyone felt like they were Robert's closest friends. 
As my husband, Robert was a boyishly handsome young man who made me laugh every day. He was born in Manhattan, raised in Brooklyn, and attended an all-boys Catholic high school in Brooklyn. You couldn't take the New Yorker out of him, and his quick wit and humor often came through in the way he'd described as a hellish day at the office or an idea gone bad. He was my safe haven, and I was his. For many, many months after he died, my ability to laugh or smile died too. Robert's love for me was sure and steadfast. We fell in love with each other over and over again, every day. His sudden and tragic death left me feeling completely gutted, amputated, and aimless. Every now and then I think about Joe, Victor, and Dylan too. My overwhelming feeling towards them is not anger or hate, but of immeasurable sadness about how their hearts and thoughts got to a point of such darkness that it led them to kill or be involved in the brutal murder of someone who was so incredibly kind to everyone, including them. I imagine at that one point in their lives, Joe, Victor, and Dylan were happy, curious, rambunctious little five-year-old boys whose views of the world were pure, naive, playful, and innocent. And now, fast forward to the night of August 2nd, 2006. What happened? What endless series of small and big and private and public decisions did they make on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis that eventually led them to commit murder or be involved in the killing of a human being? I am immensely sad for the dark turn their lives have taken, the enormous pain and grief their actions have caused to hundreds of people, and for their ongoing decision to lie about what truly happened to Robert in their own home on Swan Street. I don't know from where Joe, Victor, and Dylan find their daily strength to go on as if nothing happened 13 years ago. I do continue to hope that one day the weight of their lives will take its toll or that the truth will surface in some other way. I don't understand how one can function under the weight of such darkness, but I stopped trying to understand that type of mindset a long time ago. Their world is a completely different world that I never wish to enter. Unquote. One other note in this incredible story. Kathy Wan filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the three men in hopes of forcing them to testify in a civil proceeding, but all three took the fifth and refused to give an account of what happened the night of the murder. She eventually settled the suit in August of 2011 for an undisclosed sum. She said at the time, the funds from the settlement would be split between the Juan Estate and a law clinic at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, Robert's alma mater, that will provide legal aid to inner city residents. There is no statute of limitations for murder. If new evidence comes to light, prosecutors could file charges down the road. This podcast would not be possible without the interviews I conducted with Craig Brownstein, David Greer, Milton Norris, Bernie Grimm, and Glenn Kirshner. I also want to thank the managers here at Fox 5 for making this series possible. I also want to thank Fox 5 photojournalist Nelson Jones for his expertise in producing and editing this podcast. Until the next podcast series, this is Paul Wagner. And again, thanks for listening.